Welcome to Season 4 of American Political History, 1676, Bacon's View. Bacon had purchased his plantation, which was named Curls, and it was located in Henrico County on the frontier of the Virginia colony. Being the owner of this land made him on the same level as some of the wealthiest plantation owners outside of Jamestown. Two-thirds of his plantation was yet to be cleared and developed. The planted one-third was, of course, mostly tobacco with a little bit of corn. He owned a herd of 80 sheep, two dozen swine, 11 horses, six cows and a heifer, a bull, half-dozen calves. The horses and cows occupied the barns, while the sheep and swine live in pens. Most of the buildings on the plantation were for production, not domestic living. There were barns for animals, a blacksmith's shop, tobacco storage barn, and a spring house for cooling dairy products. The plantation had a dozen servants and slaves, an Irish blacksmith named Peter, another Peter who was 40 and the oldest of five adult Africans, including blind Tom and Kate, who had a mixed-race child with her. The remaining five slaves were natives. June was a 40-year-old woman, Tom was a 16-year-old male, Nathaniel a boy aged 11, and two four-year-old boys. Kate and her child had a room in the house, where it was assumed that Kate worked domestically. The other slaves would be found working the fields or tending to the livestock. Bacon and his wife Elizabeth lived in the brick home that they added to the older wooden main building. Their house was even furnished with some tile. The Bacons, unlike their contemporaries in Virginia, had brought over plenty of beds, towels, napkins, chamber pots, and kitchenware from England, bringing it with them as they immigrated. They avoided the hefty tariffs and taxation that would normally be required when purchasing these items in Virginia. The government in Jamestown was repressive, but repressiveness was typical. But it was also corrupt and had planted seeds of resentment over years of mismanagement. They had built worthless forts when England went to war with the Dutch. Then they levied even more taxes for an initiative to repurchase Virginian lands back from the crown but they would instead spend most, if not all, of this money on allowances for the Jamestown Burgesses to purchase lavish lifestyles. It's estimated out of the five to seven thousand pounds collected in taxes, maybe one went back to repurchasing land. This was when small farmers were often unable to pay their taxes. Taxes that could only be paid in tobacco. Tobacco that could only be sold to the port commissioner who declared the price of tobacco after heavily taxing it for Jamestown. And this port commissioner was appointed by the Jamestown Assembly, a racket if any racket has ever been described. So a farmer would have to grow tobacco, sell it to the only source at the port, be taxed on that sale, all to pay off another tax that the Jamestown Assembly had levied for some forts. And if the farmer had a bad season and could not gather enough funds to pay off these taxes, then the Jamestown court would have to seize their lands, which would be used for the further enrichment of the corrupt favorites and the grandees within the Jamestown Assembly. Farmers started to see Barclay and his actions in the lens of conspiracy to take their lands. Of course, the solution is another expensive fort. It's not about the Indians, it's about the excuse of Indian attack to take more lands from us through taxation. Adding to this discontent was that as this conflict with the Indians on the frontier started, 
Barclay and the Jamestown Burgesses were selling firearms licenses to traders, getting their own cut, who then sold firearms to the Indians that had just started wars on the frontier. Oh heavens, what a sad dilemma for us! If to unite and meet ye enemy so body of troops, and do as required thereunto our present necessity, preservation, safety, without ye governor's order, shall be censured as mutiny or rebellion and disobedience, when on the other side to lay down our guns and disperse, expose ye lives and fortunes of ourselves and families to ye merciless power of a more bloody and barbarous enemy. No lawful course was to be found. It was better to revolt against the governor than be ruined by the Indians. Opposed to the myths created by Jamestown, all of the grievances on the frontier had been sowed and sprouted long before Nathaniel Bacon stepped onto the scene to lead us. This new Indian trouble started over a labor dispute. Instead of taking their claims to a magistrate like civilized people, the Indians simply came back in the dark and stole whatever they wanted. A posse was raised, they chased down these thieves and left them with a few bruises, a light sentence for their crimes. The Indians returned and murdered Matthew's servant, right in the doorway of his own home. So George Mason and George Brent raised the county militia, marched twenty miles to the Indians' cabin in the Maryland Territory, and early in the dawn light they called out demanding for the murderers. When the accused tried to flee, Brent shot them down. The Indians returned fire, and the English engaged the Indian in a firefight. Ten Indians were shot dead. Mason's militia group, nearby, found a second cabin. When they heard the gunfire from the first militia, they assumed Indian hostility and engaged in a surprise attack against the second cabin. They killed fourteen Indians. One of the wounded Indians ran to, to Mason and said, Susquehannock, friend! Mason ran around shouting for his men to stop shooting immediately. The Susquehannocks had been one of the tribes that Berkeley had used in his games for the defense of Virginia, but they had been an ally of Jamestown since the 1630s. But they did seem, while all too friendly with the Doeg murderers. Unlike most of the Indians around Virginia, the Susquehannocks were part of the Iroquois, a warlike Indian people that tortured captives to death. After this violence, panic spread on the English frontier, they would soon have to deal with the Susquehannock hostilities. Their honor and warlike pride will make them respond with war and barbarity. Small families withdrew into larger settlements, working the fields for communal protection. Jamestown, in response, had dispatched Sir Henry Chichely with a militia to find and meet the Susquehannocks. But Chichely was stunned to find out the next morning that Berkeley had postponed the expedition and declined any discussion on a war commission for the counties themselves delaying any further discussions for the matter of violence on the frontier for months until the next regular quarterly assembly meeting. With no plans for frontier protection, English settlers would become fearful, an angry mob, forcing Bacon to step up as the honorable gentleman of the area. He had to organize this rabble to go fight the problem, instead of devouring themselves in fear. Clearly, the problem was unreasonable, untrustworthy Indians making war upon them, as it was their nature. The only way to meet a warlike culture was to punch it in the face, hard, so that they would understand and behave civilly. Jamestown's inaction 
had forced Bacon to take things into his own hands. Jamestown had made all the correct declarations of war, that any Indian that attacked, murdered, raped, or plundered should be brought a hasty wrath upon them. But that was just talk. Then they levied heavy taxes for a series of useless forts at the head of the James River, where they would post men who needed direct orders from Berkeley himself to leave the fort, stripping all purpose from these forts. The war needed to quickly be brought to the Indians' homes, or they would not understand why they should not attack the English again and again. Not only would a forceful response on the Susquehannock stop their attacks, it would deter other Indians in the area from considering ever attacking the Virginians. Bacon demanded a commission to prosecute the war against any and all hostile Indians on the frontier. Barclay flat out refused any commission. The men on the frontier started thinking that there was a conspiracy against them. Rumors grew about how much these forts would cost. A year's production of tobacco? Two years? This new taxation was just an excuse to finally push them off their lands. These forts were not for their protection. They were a Trojan horse to steal their livelihoods. Since Berkeley was such a coward, then they would have to prosecute this war with or without him. Bacon, Mason, Washington, and Allerton would gather their forces into a Virginia militia. Twelve days later, Virginia militia gathered along the approach to the Susquehannock's main encampment and fortification. It was two miles up a creek to the town proper, which was defended by swamps on both sides and palisades, low walls, defending the only approach. These palisades were built in the European tactical way, a partial semicircle that allowed firing for all the defenses to overlap on a bottlenecked location. This was a tremendously advantageous position in the time of inaccurate weapons, putting all your fire into a kill box, which your opponent must travel through to storm your defenses. The Maryland Assembly, which had joined the Virginians, had asked to speak with the native leaders. The meeting was not productive. The Susquehannocks brought out a signed symbol of friendship between them and the Maryland colony that was to last as long as the sun and moon shall last. Truman, who was leading the Maryland militia, was unimpressed by this, as this phrase was clearly figurative and not literal. Truman told the Susquehannock of the great injuries to the English that had been caused by their warriors, and asked to receive those that perpetrated these crimes for punishment under English law. The Susquehannock insisted that it was by one of the five tribes of the Iroquois Alliance. This was a good story, since the five tribes were the common enemy of everyone outside of the five tribes. But Truman called their bluff, asking the Susquehannock, if their story was true, to give him aid with their warriors to pursue the Iroquois. After all, they together could easily catch up to the Iroquois, since they had left thinking they had successfully misdirected the blame upon the Susquehannock. They would have no reason to think they were being chased, and so they could easily be caught up to. The Susquehannock sachem would not agree to giving scouts for this plan. When Washington and Allerton arrived, the Virginians accused the Susquehannock themselves of attacking Virginians. When this resulted in a stalemate of shouting and accusations at each other, the Virginians summoned one of the militiamen that had fought with the natives on the frontier. He pointed out three warriors whom he accused of committing violent acts against the Virginian plantations. These negotiations dissolved into hostilities. Then after some gunfire sounded in the distance, talks ended and the long siege began. Although having one road into your town provides a strong defensive location against frontal assaults, the weakness is that it provides a strong position from which you can siege that town. 
The English militias set up small fortifications around any possible exit and boxed in the Susquehannock into their own town. The English also asked and received support from nearby, friendly Algonquin natives. The Pecataway and Matasoman warriors would patrol the swamps for the English. Those nations had never been happy with the Susquehannock, which in their opinion had squatted into their territory. Those nations were not strong enough to have pushed the Susquehannocks off their territory with force, but they had always been waiting for an opportunity to do so. As days turned into months with no progress, except for occasional ambush of patrols, the morale of the English militia dropped. Every day that they stayed out here was planting days being lost on their farms. Taking advantage of this lack of discipline in the siege, the Susquehannocks, under the cover of darkness, snuck out of the sieged area. Once again, the English militias were back to attempting to track natives through their terrain, which they knew much better. After weeks of tracking the Susquehannock, but not being able to actually catch up to them, the Virginia militia arrived at the camp of the Okanochee. Their sachem offered to host and meet with Bacon, informing Bacon that the Susquehannocks had two encampments nearby. The first was located five miles away and had 30 warriors and 50 women, and the second one had a much greater host of men and was about 10 miles away. Bacon wanted to attack the smaller fort at once. The Okanochee sachem offered to allow Bacon's exhausted men to rest while his warriors attacked the Susquehannock. The Okanochee attacked the Susquehannock a few days later, wiping out most of them. The Okanochee publicly displayed the scalp of the defeated sachem, keeping for themselves most of the plunder, including valuable beaver pelts. They offered Bacon seven captives, asking Bacon what should be done with them. Bacon said they should be killed for their crimes, so the Okanochee savagely tortured them to death. But Bacon was insulted. The Virginia militia had tracked, battled, sieged the Susquehannock for months, and now the Okanochee had swooped in in the last second and decided to take all the plunder of the war for themselves. Militias, and even some armies in Europe, were still often paid with the plunder from warfare, not salaries which our soldiers are paid with today. Bacon, having no plunder, meant his men would get paid almost nothing for their efforts all summer. He asked for a rightful share to match their overall effort in the war. Tensions inflamed between the two parties. Conflict broke out, at first with a scuffle outside, but as everyone was on edge, those around the scuffle panicked, running, and panicked townsfolk suddenly rushed to the English positions in the encampment. The English tried to push through the panicked crowd, but five militiamen got crushed to death. To the English positioned outside of the encampment, it looked like their compadres were being mobbed by Indians, so they opened fire on the native encampment, gunning down what turned out to be civilians. The Indian warriors returned fire, and a chaotic skirmish would ensue. Fires would start, eventually reaching the encampment's powder stores. The explosion would destroy most of the encampment. After this battle was won, Bacon's men took any Indian survivors as slaves, and whatever slim amount of plunder survived those fires. More than a hundred Indians and a dozen English died in this battle. When Bacon returned to Henrico County, the assembly was in process of proclaiming Bacon and his victorious men in rebellion against the crown. As they met, Bacon burst into the chambers, demanding that the people of the county be heard. Later that day, Bacon would be popularly elected as the Burgess representing their county and the next Jamestown assembly. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.